Warren Mati is a professor of French and comparative literature at the University of Colorado Boulder and the editor of Ulipo, a primer of potential literature. This is Warren Mati. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Warren Mati. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to talk to you uh, because you had edited an anthology uh, of a, uh, a literary movement that probably does not get as much attention uh, as I think it deserves. It's it's well known within literary circles uh, and pardon my pronunciation, Ulipo. Your pronunci- pronunciation is absolutely correct. It is Ulipo. Yep. Perfect. So can you tell people who are listening who have no idea what this movement is about, why we care about it? What is Ulipo? Well, the Ulipo is short for um, the French expression ouvoir de littérature potentielle, which means it's a workshop of potential literature. It's a, it's a movement that was founded in the very, very early 1960s um, by Raymond Queneau and François Le Lyonnais. Raymond Queneau was... Uh, um, uh, a towering figure in French literature, not only a writer, but also a writer's writer who influenced uh, uh, two and and perhaps three generations of French writers who who were intrigued in formal experiments and and experimental literature in in general. Uh, François Le Le Lyonnais was a chemist by trade, uh, an industrial chemist. He uh, also was a very, very um, inquiring mind with a with a hugely broad um, uh, horizon of interests. And between them, they 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 founded this um, group, which initially had ten members. Um, some of whom were writers, some of whom were mathematicians. And at its outset, the Ulipo, one of their goals was to find sort of uh, mutual affinities, identify mutual affinities for mathematics and literature. So it was uh, interested in sort of literary form from the very beginning. It grew to, you know, it would eventually grow to, I think the Ulipo includes now 30-some members, you know, people do not leave the group even when they die. They pride themselves on including members who are deceased, you know, as opposed to surrealism, right, where, you know, Breton excommunicated people right and left. Ulipo Ulipo really um, was conceived in direct opposition to, to surrealism with its exclusionary practices. You know, indeed, Queneau was one of the people who signed the pamphlet, uh, Un Cadavre, a Cadaver, it was called, uh, in 1929, in which some of the people who had been excommunicated from, from the surrealist group denounced Bouton and his tactics. The Ulipo at its outset was concerned with two things. On the one hand, what they called analysis, which was the identification of already existing systems of formal constraint in literature. 
such as the lipogram. Just to take one example, the lipogram is defined as a, a text that either deliberately or inadvertently leaves out one or more letters of the alphabet. And, and members of the Ulipo would eventually trace that um, form back to, I think, the 6th century before the Common Era. And Georges Perec, um, who is a member of the second generation of the Ulipo, would in 1969 publish a novel called La Disparition, which has been translated as Avoid, a 300-page novel written entirely without the letter E. Now, the letter E is the most frequently used letter in the in in English, but its frequency is still more high in French. So it's 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 you know on just on the face of it, it's a very very difficult task. Yeah. Um. You know, Perec's achievement, I think, is is all the more interesting insofar as his novel is con is conceived as a detective novel in which. The problem is precisely the dip disappearance of the the e from the alphabet. In other words, the, the 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 enigma to be solved is is the fact that the e has absconded from the alphabet. So mm. there are many many um, indices in the text that point to that. There's a hospital ward with twenty six beds in which the fifth bed is empty. There's an encyclopedia in twenty six volumes, but the fifth volume is 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 not present on the shelf there's a family with 26 cousins but the fifth cousin has you know left the family and so forth and so on moreover in the form of construction of the book itself that absence is reflected the uh, the book's chapters are numbered from one to 26 but there's no fifth chapter it goes from the fourth chapter right to the sixth chapter mm -hmm. the the book is uh, organized in six parts but the second part is missing. It goes from part one to part three, you know, the, the vowels and the semi-vowel Y, right? Yeah. So at every level, it reflects that absence. But the book is, moreover, about absence. It's about death and it's about loss and it's about absence. There are literally millions of deaths in in um, La Disparition, in Avoid. And it seems to me that the novel you know, far from being just a kind of an example of literary acrobatics, it's a novel that has um, very pungent things to say about loss and lack and mourning and so forth. Yeah. Um, things that Perret couldn't say in more direct ways at the time. And things that he would say more directly a bit later on in a in texts such as W or the or the memory of childhood. So yeah. yeah. The um Cunot's um Cent Mille Milliards de Poem, one hundred thousand billion poems, right, which he wrote basically simultaneously with the foundation with the with the Ulipos Foundation in the very early 1960s is um, kind of a seminal text for the Ulipo as well. It's a collection of 10 sonnets, 10 sonnets, wherein every line of every sonnet can be exchanged for its opposite number 
in any of the other nine sonnets. So you've got, you know, sonnet being 14, 14 lines long. For the first line, you've got 10 possibilities. For the second, for the first two lines, you've got 100 possibilities, 10 to 10 squared. Yeah. For the first three lines, you've got 1,000 possibilities, 10 to the third power, and so forth and so on, 10 to the 14th power, one Samuel de Bohem, it's the staggering number of possibilities. So that wagers on combinatorics and permutation. Um, and once again, it could seem to be just an example of literary acrobatics, but I think what he's, what Kuno is trying to put on stage, as it were, he puts it on stage and makes it perform, is the notion that literature itself is combinatorial in, in character. And that, you know, the the possibility that, or as the Ulipans would say, the potential of that that combinatorial character of literature is staggering. Wait, what, why do you say that literature is combinatorial? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people have argued that. Italo Calvino argued that um, early on in a, in a couple of pieces that you can find in his collective essays. Umberto Eco argued that early on. There are people like, you know, Vladimir Prop, the, you know, the Russian formal, formalist, um, in morphology, the folktale took the canon of Russian folktales and argued that those folktales, each and every one of the many folktales that he studied, is merely the permutation of a very, very finite set of elements. So a very finite set of elements can, in different arrangements, tell a very a, a staggering number of, of stories. Yeah. You know, think... Think, for example, of, you know, I mean, the letters in the alphabet, even since yeah. we were talking about letters, right? There are 26 of them. But in different combinations, they can create a lexicon whose dimensions are, are you know, I mean, almost not to be measured, right? Right, right. So, Interesting. Um, yeah. That that notion of combinatorics and permutation is central to the early Ulipo and becomes sort of, you know, the Ulipians will play on it in a variety of different ways that are very, very interesting to me, not perhaps to to everyone, but I find them very interesting as a, as a dyed-in-the-wool, you know, sort of formalist and a, and a, and a literature nerd. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think um, it's interesting talking, hearing you uh, go into how uh, and and mentioning the point that this could appear to be just literary acrobatics of like, yeah. okay, like why are we, okay, sweet, you have like a trillion poems, but like, what are you even trying to say here? Um, right. w which is something that uh, a writer who was influenced by the Wooly Poe, uh, David Foster Wallace, brought up in his own writing of like, oh, yeah. like, I'm, th there should be some emotional content here. Um, and the, the question I want to ask you when we're talking about all these, uh, you know, experiments with form, it seems like up to this point, the history of the past, like, 100, 200 years of Western art, not just in literature, but in music, in painting, uh, was sort of 
the disintegration of rules, you know, like let's throw out uh, representation in art. Let's throw out tonality in music. Let's throw out meter and rhyme and all these constraints um, to the point where, uh, you know, at a certain certain point, it seems like there's nothing else to, you know, no more rules to to break down. Uh, was this movement at all an acknowledgement of that fact, a reaction against it, uh, or, or nothing to do with the these preceding developments? I don't think every single movement of, you know, the avant-garde in the 20th century does away with rules entirely. Sure. There are many, there are many I think, that 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 embrace rules, although some of them don't articulate them as rules. Do you see what I mean? Sure. Or as constraint. It is true that the Ulipo reacted against the notion of aleatorics, right? The, I, I think it was Claude Berge, one of the founding members of the Ulipo, who just stated bluntly to say that he said that Ulipo c'est l'anti-hazard. He said it was the Ulipo is anti-chance, mm. anti-chance. So for him, the Ulipo is based upon programmatic work, huh? intentional work, and work within constraints. I, I believe that most of the early Ulipians would have argued that, you know, we, we work within constraints whether or not we realize it. I mean, we have to conjugate our verbs in certain ways, right? We, you know, nouns are either masculine or feminine in French, uh, you know, generally speaking. Um, you know, we have to construct our sentences in certain ways, obeying certain laws of syntax and so forth and so on, right? And that it is useful also to to make those, to, to make rules more um, um, obvious and, 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 and also more directly functional and, and observable. Yeah. Moreover, if you yourself are constructing rules, you know, that, that gives you an opportunity that you might not have if you went at something more blithely within systems of constraint of which you might not even be aware. Um, another Ulipian, forget who it was, defined the Ulipo as a bunch of rats who are obliged to construct the labyrinth from which they have to escape. And I think that's very interesting. You know, it's, a, it's proposed in a lighthearted way and so forth. Spirit of levity, and which is very characteristic of the Ulipo, but it also has, you know, broader implications that I think are, are very interesting indeed. When you say broader implications, what are you referring to? Well, about the way, about the no, the programmatic character of their work, about the notion of of self imposed formal constraint, and and about you know the, the sort of the paradoxical notion that that constraint can actually facilitate creativity rather than um, than stifle it. 
So at the end, for instance, Georges Perec, after he writes La, La Disparition, Avoid, you know, his 300-page lyrical novel, he writes a novel called History of the, pardon me, he writes an essay called History of the Lipogram, in which he traces the lipogram precisely from, you know, the 6th century before the common era to, to his own work in 1969, you know, La Disparition. And at the end of that essay, he says something very, very curious. He says, um, you know, in this light, he says, in the light of what I've just said, you know, uh, formal constraint, let me see, let me quote it, quote it exactly. In this sense, at the very end of his essay, he says, in this sense, and I quote, in this sense, the suppression of the letter of the typographical sign of the basic prop is a purer, more objective, more decisive operation, something like constraint degree zero, after which everything becomes possible, end quote. So far from constituting an insurmountable obstacle, the notion that you're going to write a novel without the letter E, to his way of thinking, it broadened the horizon of possibility rather than narrowing it. And I, and I find that, you know, a very, very intriguing idea. Well, why in particular do you find that an intriguing idea? Because I think that it enriches our, you know, potentially, if you, you know, if you sort of follow it and if you'd have the patience to, to, to read some of these, you know, these, the texts that result from that kind of theoretical position. Yeah. If, if you trace it and if you have the patience, as I say, it 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 gives a more, it gives a richer, deeper understanding of what literature actually is and also what it can be. That's why I find it interesting. And, and when you say that, is that because uh, sort of what what this guy is describing is like, hey, whether or not you realize it, you are constraining your uh, your writing on some level. And when you talk about how literature is, you know, combinatorics, you know, even just the the permutation of letters, the alphabet. In other words, is it kind of uh, just heightening what literature is by just, you know, being, I want to say blunter, but like saying, you know, you know, I'm going to remove the letter E. This is hey, we're, we're all removing, you know, something by choosing to write about something else. Uh, is that kind of just what they're doing, just making literature more obvious, <laughs> like what, what, its nature? Yes, I think that's what they're doing. Okay. I, I think that's what they're doing. You know, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but what right. they're doing is they are they are producing works that are literary, only more so. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In other words, they're taking literature, literary convention and, and playing with literary convention and, and, you know, subjecting it to constraint in this kind of crucible, right? Yeah. So that, so that literary potential becomes amplified in a sense and more obvious so 
take the example of Cano's text, right? It plays on the convention of the sonnet. The sonnet, if you know, objectively speaking, you know, you know, in in over its its history since the since sort of the Italian Renaissance, you know, it's a very constraining form. You know, you have fourteen lines, and in certain traditions of the sonnet, the rhyme scheme has to be, you know, very um, determined and so forth. And you know, in the French tradition, is generally, uh, you know, there's a there's a uh, rules of prosody to be to be observed and so forth and so on. Uh, so it's the sonnet is itself constraining. Cunot takes that constraining form and subjects it to further constraints, these combinatory constraints that 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 arrange for each line to be replaceable by any of its homologues, any of its opposite numbers in the other nine sonnets of the ten master sonnets, right? Yeah. And, and thus he, you know, he puts the sonnet very much to the test, but in a rule-based system and brings out its potential and the potential, you know, that it, <laughs> it gives out onto uh, what is it again? How many is it? 100. I think it's a trillion. Well, yeah, no, it's it's a thousand hundred billion. Yeah, something like that. Let me see. I always forget what it's 100 trillion. 100 trillion. 100 trillion. And in other words, a one <laughs> followed by a one followed by 14 zeros. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a teacher and I've I've often called my students' attention to this to this um text, but I've never assigned it to them as homework because you know, if you set out to read this poem, to read all of the poems that are derived from this combinatory system, if you read eight hours a day, 200 days a year, that's pretty reasonable, right, for a really committed reader. Yeah. If you were to read eight hours a day, 200 days per year, it would take you one billion 41,666,666 years to read the text. That is to say, something a little bit over 10 million centuries. Now, if you were a little bit more enthusiastic and um, industrious, you might choose to read 24 hours a day, 365 days per year, except for leap years when you would read 366 days per year. So if you read 24-7, yeah. It would still take you 190 million years or 1 million centuries, almost 2 million centuries, to read the entire text. So the number of sonnets that this machine generates potentially is humongous. It's just, it's just it beggars the imagination. Yeah. But that's one of the things that Kuno is deliberately intentionally putting on display and i you know i find it that machine quite sleek and wonderful yeah have and you, I, it, I i want to ask you in particular about say like this this work uh and other works in, in the the Willie poe canon um are, are you maybe surprised at this point in literary history 
that, uh, you know, the printing press made the novel possible. We're all walking around with the printing press in our pocket. Excuse me. Walk, walking around with the printing press in our pocket. Um, I, that the, these sort of combinatorial techniques and uh, there's a lot of mathematicians involved in this movement. How How is this not have like a resurrect like is there not even a website that is just constantly printing out these these trillion or hundred trillion poems uh i don't know if i don't know if the website is printing them out i would doubt that very much it would take more forests than there are probably on earth to print them out oh i, I mean uh, on screen let's say yeah i see yes there are websites that will generate you know derive poems derived from those 10 master sonnets both okay. in English and in French, I believe. So you can go on to one of those websites and it will, I think, randomly generate a sonnet for you that's, you know, personal to you. Yeah. Okay. But it, it, let's say besides this work, extending, yep. you know, the, the sort of the movement, um, are you surprised that technology hasn't played a role in, in you know, this kind of work uh, continuing? Well, I think technology has, you know, um, early on in its existence, you know, there were some of the mathematicians in the in the Ulipo, and not only the mathematicians were interested in sort of um, um, cybernetics, right? And yeah. computer-based applications, which, you know, sort of, became available, you know, sort of grew up with the Ulipo in a sense, right? So there was there was a group called the Alamo, and there was, you know, there were various members of the of the Ulipo who were interested in in um in that sort of thing and in and in computer-based um applications for literature and so forth and so on. But I think that that initial enthusiasm waned in a certain sense in in subsequent years right and 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 i believe that the ulipo is still sort of committed to a kind of a, a more artisanal production of literature rather than a sort of an automatic production of literature do you, do you see what i mean uh, yeah um are, are you surprised just as a scholar of, of literature and, and as a self-described literature nerd that, uh, you know, it, it seems like when we're talking about something like Ulipo, which is all about, you know, form. And uh, it also seems that because every work of art has to be uh, engineered on some level in order to be brought into existence, like pianos don't just fall from the sky, uh, you know, mention the printing press, etc. Um it, it seems like the the ultimate limitations of the form are built in by the technology that is used to create it. Like a, a book, for instance, you can have any, you know, combination of letters that you want in those pages, but it's ultimately, uh, you know, string of characters between two covers. And that's, that is the limitation, the physical limitation uh, that is imposed on whatever formal experiments you want to make. And, we we do have new technology, which seems like it would bring about new forms of literature. Um, is that something that you, you mentioned this initial burst of enthusiasm? And I think there was other enthusiasm for like hypertext novels and stuff like that. Why do you think this has dissipated? 
you know, you would be better off asking an Olympian about this. Okay. No, no, I'm quite serious because I'm looking in from the outside, but I will give you, you know, my perspective as an outsider looking in yeah. the group and, a, you know, an interested outsider and a long-term sort of uh, devotee, you yes. know, of Ulipo's production. Um, I believe that that many of the sort of the ways that that people started using computers to to experiment with literature seemed to the the members of the Ulipo to be a bit reductive, mm -hmm. um, and and seemed to verge toward, you know, their seemed seemed to verge toward the aleatoric, right? So kind of like automatic writing, right. you know? Yeah. Um, uh, I think there was a, there was a, um, a group of people, maybe it was Max Bantz, somebody, I, I forget, I forget the name of the person, but um, they had had, I think, several invitations from people involved in sort of literary cybernetics to to collaborate in, and I believe that in the for the most part those collaborations um seemed shallow to the members of the Ulipo. Mm. Progressively more so, you know, as as time went on. Um not all of the Ulipos sort of constraints or forms or or researches are mathematizable um in, in fact i you know i don't know that the majority are i would think probably not yeah interesting My, yeah. It, it, where is ulipo today you mentioned there's these 30 members um it, it seems like it had a heyday. And uh, as far as literary movements go, it, it doesn't feel like it can last forever, even though there may still be like fruitful endeavors and these kinds of things. But like, where, where does it stand now? You know, I do not know of another literary group that has lasted, that flourished for more than 60 years. Yeah. Right? The Ulipo is, is is in its seventh decade now, which must be some kind of a record for a literary group. Um, they are still going strong. It's true that you know they haven't had the kind of massive um, popular acceptance that you know certain other kinds of literature have had. That, that's I think that's kind of inevitable because certain of their, you know, certain works of the Ulipo are arduous, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's difficult to read, for instance, Perec's La Disposition, the, the lipogrammatic novel, whereas others are are more are more approachable. I mean, you know, some even are very approachable, even if. Um, you know, below the surface, there are things going on that the sort of the general reader wouldn't perceive, right? Um, you know, the Prix Goncourt, the, the, the Goncourt Prize is given to, uh, you know, the, the notionally the most distinguished novel that comes out in France every year. And an Olympian 
Hervé Letelier, you know, won that a couple of years ago for a novel that that he wrote. And it's a novel that reads very, very well and is very accessible. But there are lots of things going on beneath that very accessible surface as well. So some of the Ulipo's work is a lot more apparently accessible to sort of a general reader than others. Yeah. Perex, Georges Perec's Life, a User's Manual, which is, you know, a big, chunky 700-page novel. It's it's a novel that, as Perec himself says, you know, you can read flat out on your bed, right? Yeah. But it's also a novel where, um, you know, sort of, different and sort of affiliated systems of formal constraint come into play in in a manner that 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 boggles the the mind yeah did the, that is that something that they have commented on of, of you know whether or not they have popular appeal do they care about that i don't know i can't speak for them on that point duncan yeah. I, I just don't know, but it's it's true that they have different uh, opinions on whether or not a given text should make its constraints apparent. So Raymond Cuno, one of the co-founders, right, had the theory of his theory of scaffolding, as he said. He said, but you know, when you build a building, when you build like an apartment building, you've got to use scaffolding. Right, his scaffolding for him that was a metaphor that he used for constraint, right, for building a text out of literary constraint. So you you build a building, you use scaffolding, and you build it as the building rises. The scaffolding rises to enable the workers to construct construct the building and everything. But when the building is finished, you take the scaffolding away, and nothing remains but the building. Mm-hmm. Others in the Ulipo suggest that a text produced using constraint has to speak about that constraint. So, you know, to return to that text once again, you know, talks about, you know, the disappearance of the letter E without actually articulating the letter E, but everything in the text points to the fact that the E is absconded from the alphabet. Who knows some miles the poem talks about the sonnet and, and and indeed the the 10 sonnets are there as sonnets yeah right yeah so so the, the Ulipians would would differ on that very crucial point it seems to me about whether whether or not to give up the secret of the text of the text constraint based elaboration Man, that seems that seems rough. If you write an entire novel with a secret system of constraint that the the reader can't riddle out for themselves, well, think about performance, Duncan. I mean, you're not all perform. Think about magicians, for instance. A magician yeah. is going to, you know, perform something that will amaze people, but the magician doesn't want to tell the people how that how he or she goes about producing that effect right well that's true but in the case of the missing letter e 
it's apparent that the the rabbit coming out of the hat would be yes. oh my god this person wrote an entire novel without the letter e and yes. the the process of how that happens i don't know how how the author approached writing that whereas if i don't know what the constraint is if i don't know that there's the letter e missing that seems like someone telling me there's a magic trick and i i can't even see it you know, I can tell you anecdotally, anecdotally at least, that when that book came out in 1969, it was reviewed in the in the press, right? In, yeah. In the press. And one reviewer, one reviewer seemed not to have noticed that in 312 pages, there was not one letter E. Mm. Um, that's, you know, that it's a little, it, that's a little tough, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reviewers pay more or less attention to the objects that they that they review, right? The, to the literary objects that they pretend to criticize. And I think in this case, um, that reviewer passed um, passed over a detail that um, should have, you know, jumped up and slapped them in the face because the language of la disposition is very, very bizarre, um, very, very um, idiosyncratic. From the first paragraph on, it's 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 as if he were writing in a different language or in a language in a different dialect. Let's say Disparationese. Yeah, that's interesting that a, a reviewer read the book and had no idea. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about I mean, what are you going to do after that? You can sort of slink <laughs> away in shame with your tail. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah, it's rough. Um, yeah. So you, you, um, you obviously you're an expert on uh, you know French literature, contemporary French literature, um, and I wanted to. The, there's uh, a Borges uh, quote uh, from an essay of his uh, where he he puts himself in the mind of uh, like an English versus a French writer, and he says that like the English writer is sort of just. As uh, uh, you know, more laissez-faire writes what they they feel is uh, appropriate for them. Uh, whereas uh, in his work, something like a, a French writer will ask themselves, like, uh, "Oh, uh, what what would a you know uh, a, a French a Southern French man uh, born in you know Provence say in in the nineteen twenties if he were a Catholic uh, in a story about blah blah blah." Uh, in other words, that uh, the French are very like focused on um, these sort of, I don't want to say superficial things, um, but um, maybe like their place in culture, history, literary you know, world. Um, is that, is that, do you think, a fair characterization? And do you think it, it is at all part of the reason why uh, something like Ulipo happened in France, of all places? You know, I've read and reread Borges since my teens, everything that I can get my hands on. And I've learned a tremendous amount from him. I admire him a great deal, but I don't believe, um, I'm, I don't subscribe to um, sort of generalizations about um, national literatures or, or um, sort of... Um, national literary tendencies like that. Very, yeah. I've seen too many exceptions. Now, that being true, you know, that being true, uh, I think that 
the early 1960s in France, it was fertile ground for literary experimentation of this kind. And um, I, I, I think that, that more broadly speaking, you know, in Western Europe, there was at that time a kind of a, a search for something else, you know, um, a search for new way of doing things, new ways of doing things. Um, I think people were ready for new forms, new protocols, new ideas. And there, there was a sense that certain old ways of doing things had been kind of exhausted, right? I mean, the, the new novel, which arose in the 1950s, the Nouveau Roman in France, um, is, is a reaction against old ways of doing things, right? And I think in, in many cases that, that reaction is kind of overstated, right? I mean, Grier, who was is often taken as the, you know, the, the spokesperson for the Nouveau Roman said that, that the Nouveau Roman was going to clear psychology out of the novel, right? Just evacuate psychology from the novel. And yet one of his most famous novels, La Jalousie, is, is obviously a psychological novel speaking about, you know, a, a man, a nameless man who's fretting about whether or not his wife is having an affair with um with their neighbor. Now, I mean, sure. patently a psychological novel. And the notion that the nouveau roman will be utterly new is likewise false. It doesn't, it, it, it is not utterly new. You can't get away with anything being utterly new. If anything were utterly new, it would be unreadable. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. And it would. You've got to use the same lexicon that we use. You've got to appeal to certain tropes and certain situations and so forth. And so nothing is utterly, utterly new. There is a kind of attention, a balance, some sort of a, um, a dosage of tradition and innovation. And something, some things are more, veer more toward the side of innovation. Some things veer more toward the side of tradition and so forth and so on. But in that perspective, you know, the Ulipo, I think, capitalizes on, on this idea that, that something's got to give, you know, that we've got to find new forms that are, um, that allow us to think in in new ways, um, and, yes. and and I believe that the Ulipo's you know research goes in that direction, that it that it opens up significant new horizons for for literature. I really do. And, do you... and in that sense, I guess you know, although I'm not <laughs> I'm not you know a believer in much else, I I'm a kind of a uh, you know, an Ulipo fundamentalist. I, I really do believe that they open doors that would otherwise have remained closed. What, what doors do you think they opened? Doors of literary potential. Door, you know, they. I think that they they showed that they demonstrated, you know, both theoretically and practically, but on both levels, that that literature was capable of a lot more things than people might have suspected. They broadened the horizon of possibility of literature. 
Yeah. And and that seems like there's not really in the arts, like a, a notion of progress, like there is in the sciences, like is, you know, 15th century literature really worse than what's being written yes. today. Um, but there is, as you said, uh, a broadening of possibilities. Um, and do you think that um, perhaps uh, Ulupo's literary children are uh, more well-known, maybe get more credit than the, the, the parents? Well, I don't see, <laughs> it's difficult for me to see how that, that family ramifies. I don't, uh, are you thinking of any particular writing writers? You, th you mentioned David Foster Wallace. Uh, yeah, yeah. He would qualify as a child of the Unipo? I, I think so. I mean, I, I I think a lot of postmodern literature seems to have, particularly with like the emphasis on on formal, uh, you know, playfulness and formal experiments, seems to owe a lot to uh, this movement. Um, mm -hmm. And it, yet again, to me, I'm you know by trade a software engineer, so I'm, maybe I'm I'm not I don't have the right perspective here, um, but it seems like Ulipo is more of a uh, it, it's not something that your average person knows about. You'd have to like really be kind oh, of into the thick of literature. Yes. Whereas yes. the average yes. person yes. might know about like modernism. You know, they may have learned about it in yes. like English class. You know. Yes. Yes, that's true. I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's difficult for me to say what sort of direct affiliative, you know influence the the Ulipo has exerted on French literature or indeed on on Western literature I, I I would be cherry about making pronouncements of that sort I think they I think they have had a lot of influence yeah um, but I, I wouldn't know how to trace it with any degree of precision fair yeah 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 that's uh, that's a hard question I guess to ask um I, I don't want to take a ton of your time. Uh, we're almost at an all the time in the world. No, no, no. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so I, I, I guess I, one of the things that um, I wanted to make sure I asked is this intersection of literature and math, um, which I find very interesting uh, because it, it seems like, especially today, and you're in the academic world, so you, you probably know this very well, that uh, sort of the intellectual disciplines are uh, hyper-specialized uh, these days. And yes. there's not nearly as much cross-pollination uh, as there could or should be. And so how, how, did this, how did this intersection come about? Did these people just happen to know each other and they had these kinds of interesting conversations that led to this form of literature or did they seek each other out? What's the story there? Well, um... In the first instance, let me let me say, let me insist upon the fact that I'm not a mathematician myself, and that, you know, you would you would be well advised to ask someone who's more qualified about math in mathematics to to um, to speak about that. There is a recent book uh, by someone named Natalie Berkman, B-E-R-K-M-A-N, called. Ulipo and the Mathematics of Literature. Hmm? Hmm. That's very interesting and, and and answers that that the sort of questions that you're you're asking 
in a much more informed way. However, I can say that um, in the first instance, at least, both of the founders of the Ulipo, Raymond Queneau and uh, François Le Lyonnais, were very interested in mathematics. You know, Le Lyonnais, perhaps in 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 a more direct direct way, since he was trained as a scientist and so forth and so on. But Raymond Queneau himself, though he was a uh, a literary man, was also um, an accomplished amateur mathematician, and you know he was extremely interested in the um, mutual affinities of mathematics and literacy pointed out, you know, trivially, but, 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 but pungently, he said, you know, you, in order to compose an Alexandrian, you know, which is a form of French verse structure, you've got to be able to count to 12. Right? <laughs> and clearly in order to, you know, to compose a sonnet, you got to be able to count to fourteen, and so forth, and so on. Uh, so, I think the the original mm, sort of impetus came, came from those two people and the people that they recruited into that original ten member group. Um, my own guess is that the sort of the rigor that one associates with mathematics and mathematical inquiry, they felt that that would be salubrious when, when, when kind of um, affiliated with literature and literary inquiry. You yeah. see what I mean? A kind of an increased rigor, a kind of a, a, a scaffolding to return to that term. Right. That would, that would be very useful for, in the, in the process of, constructing a piece of literature mm. yeah it, it there there are i i suppose the, the there was a recent book about uh it was called like prime something it was about the intersections of math and literature um from just a pure reader enjoyment perspective um for people who have not read any ulipo uh, who may be curious after hearing this conversation, um, is there anything that you think, uh, you know, you edited an anthology of Wooly of, of Poe literature. Is there anything that you think in particular, someone who's curious, uh, but who, who, you know, maybe doesn't want to, uh, you know, read something that would be discouraging to that interest before they had like a taste of, you know, uh, you know, something real. Uh, is there any anywhere that they should turn first, you think? You know, I mentioned in passing Perec's Life, a user's manual. Yeah. And I think that would be a very good place to start. Because once again, it's a, you know, it's a chunky novel, a big chunky novel, like, like I'm, devoted to you know big chunky novels you you can sort of get into them and 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 inhabit them right there's a yeah. there's a place for us there's a gift that we can we can take up residence in big chunky novels so it reads like a big chunky novel and it's a very very satisfying novel it's it's quotient of what gerald prince the narratologist called narrativity in other words the the pleasure of of, of the story well told uh that it's 
that quotient is very high. It's it's a series of stories, a set of stories, mutually implicated stories that are extremely well told. It's a novel that reads really, really well. And yet it is based on really staggering, mutually complementary sets of formal constraints of different kinds. So my own advice would be for a reader, and it has to be a reader who likes to read, right? Not just yeah. someone who's, you know, someone someone who's kind of devoted to, you know, reading. My advice to that person would be to read Life a User's Manual, and then after having read it through, to take cognizance of what went into it, and to think about it in terms of not its reception, because that person has just received the novel, right? right. But in terms of its production, right? Yeah. And and when you when you put those two perspectives in in articulation, right? When you see the play of those two perspectives, that is to say, production and reception, I, I think you know, in texts such as Life a User's Manual, um it's pretty illuminating. So that would be my advice. I, I I would advise a friend to start there. Nice. Um, the name of the anthology, uh, before we go, can you remind people of it? Which anthology is that? Uh, the Ulipo. Oh, you mean mine? Yes. Okay. Mine is called Ulipo a primer of potential literature and it's in its third edition you can find it at the Dalkey archive press nice and uh yeah. if people are more curious there about are others as well there's a, an ulipo compendium there's an ulipo laboratory and so forth and so on so that the mine is not the only one but it was the first available in english i think it it was published in the first edition came out in 80 something something 86. Nice. Which is a hell of a long time ago. <laughs> I was I was eight or nine, I think, when it came out. <laughs> nice. Um, and if people are, are more generally curious about your work in particular, is there anywhere they can go uh, find more about the kind of work that you do? Um, sure. You know, if anybody wants to write in to me directly, I'll send them my CV. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, mean, I don't know. If I had to pick, if I had to pick one of my my books to inflict upon somebody else, it would probably be a, a book called Mirror Gazing, which is about mirror scenes in literature, which I collected over decades and decades. But I, I think it's a, a fairly readable book as academic books go, and that too appeared at the Dalkey Archive Press. Um, is that also included? Mirror Gazing. Uh, mirror gazing. Does does it include a mention of uh, Borges, uh, the mirror scene? Um, quite certainly. Let me let me check very very briefly, and I'll tell you for sure. Oh yes, yeah yeah. Borges is ma massively apparent in this book. Yeah, uh, there are scenes abstracted from dream tigers, from ficciones, from selected poems, from seven nights, and so forth yeah. and so on. So this is a book called Mirror Gazing, and it came out at the Dalkey Archive Press in 2014. Lovely. 
Thanks for the free publicity. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, thanks for coming on the show. Um, if you got 60 seconds after this call, I'd love to tell you about a, a formal experiment that I'm working on. But Of course, I'd love to hear that. Um, Warren, thank you very much for your time. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you. And it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for the, uh, for the great discourse. You're, you're quite welcome. Thank you to Warren Monty, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.